Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the Old Testament book, The Song of Solomon. We will begin in chapter 4. On the outset, I just want to say that it is a whole lot easier doing a one-off sermon than it is to endeavor to teach the whole counsel of God to the whole church of God. I'm certainly thankful for all the efforts of Pastor Connor and the other elders here and the difficulty that is to try and bring a message uh, for everyone in the church and to bring the entire Bible to the church, to the young, to the old, to the uh, mature, to the uh, new in Christ. And I'm certainly thankful for those efforts and I'm delighted it is my joy to be here and uh, fill in for Pastor Connor while he's in Colorado. Uh, the Song of Solomon can be a difficult book. Uh, first of all, because it's 3,000 year old ancient Hebrew poetry. And so there's a variety of interpretations, and all the commentators all say different things, and that's fine. That's actually kind of in the nature of poetry, isn't it? Uh, but I do think I'm on solid ground with what I'm teaching today. Uh, when I first became a Christian, one of the first uh, series of messages I remember listening to was on a series on the Song of Solomon by uh, Ken Conley. And it will be in his vein that uh, his kind of style that I'm going to teach these two chapters. And I will do my best to endeavor, endeavor not to say vineyard when reading through here. The Song of Solomon. Now, the way I look at the Song of Solomon, is I see an old married couple giving each other googly eyes, recounting their love. It's not necessarily a linear story, but they kind of are expressing their love for one another and bringing up old memories and interrupting each other. It's definitely a love song. It's a very physical love song. It is a song that ought to make some of you blush when you read through it, when you really get to understand what they're saying. Uh, don't worry, I will endeavor to um, uh, stick to the theology part of it. And I think we have really good reason to stick to the theology part of it. This sermon will basically be an exposition of Isaiah 62.5. Isaiah 62, 5. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. As the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. Here God Himself says that His love for us is like a bride and her bridegroom. And that that physical pleasure, that physical joy that defines marriage as something higher, something greater. And it lifts our eyes and minds to heaven, and it should. This is not just a physical sweet love story for us to say sweet things to each other. This is something to teach us about God. Notice in this passage in Isaiah, who does the rejoicing? God does the rejoicing in us. And that's what I want to get through. My two major points in this sermon is that God loves you. My other point is to seek that love. And not turn your back on that love. Our Baptist forefathers saw the theological implications 
in the Song of Solomon. It's quoted twice in our Confession of Faith. Uh, starting in paragraph 10, verse, uh, uh, chapter 10, paragraph 1. Uh, halfway through the paragraph, uh, I'll not read the whole thing. Starting halfway in the paragraph, it talks about renewing their wills. And by this almighty power determining, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Christ Jesus. Yet so as they come most freely, made, being made willingly by His grace. And one of the proof texts is Song of Solomon 1.4 where she says, draw me and we will run after thee. And this is the subject of my sermon. I want to encourage you to draw after Christ. It's, a, it's difficult to interpret, uh, but... I think you'll see the theological implications of it when we go over the characters of this story. The first character is easy. This is the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. King Solomon. And this is the Song of Songs, that Hebrew repetition. This is his greatest song. And I think when you see the subject matter, you'll see that this is one of the greatest messages in the Scripture. Next we have his bride, his love. She doesn't have a name, but she's called a Shulamite. Not a Shunammite like Abishag, but a Shulamite. Now, some commentators have tried to find a town that she comes from, but I don't think this is their actual uh, uh, telling the place of her birth. Rather, the Shulamite is a derivative, actually, of the name Solomon. So it's a pet name. In English, he would have called her Solomonette. Now, what does the name Solomon mean? means peace, right? And he was a king. So, in your minds, can you think of anywhere else where you can find that the king of peace calls his bride that he loves after his own name, Christians? And I think when you see that in the script, in, in the Song of Solomon, that you can begin seeing the New Testament application. That this is a message of Christ's love for His church. Is a message for our love to Christ. And then there are some other minor players. There are some friends and some family. But we'll start in verse 1 of chapter 4. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair, thou hast dove's eyes. Within thy locks, thy hairs as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep, a, a flock of sheep that are even shorn, which came up from the washing. Every one of them bare twins, and none, of, none is barren among them. Or is she saying that she has lovely hair, and she has all of her teeth. They're not crooked, and uh, she's not missing any of them. Something that was probably very rare back in Solomon's day. Thy lips are like a thread of scarlet, and thy speech is comely. Thy temples are like a piece of pomegranate within thy locks. Thy neck is like the tower of David, builded for an armory, whereon there hang thousand, a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Thy two breasts are like two young roes that are twins, which feed among the lilies. Until the day break and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of Myrrh, and to the hill of frankincense, thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. Doesn't that sound sweet? 
Doesn't that sound romantic? Here Solomon is telling his bride that she's perfect. There's nothing wrong with her. She's supremely beautiful in his eyes. He loves her. He says he loves her. There's no spot. These are simple statements and we can... Not, they're not hard to understand, but they can actually be very hard to believe and apply, especially in our own lives. Because was she really perfect? Was she really without spot, without flaw? No. As we're going to read, she's not perfect. And sometimes, we know ourselves too well. We see our own sins. We see again, Every time we offend our God, we break His law knowingly. Sometimes we can, it's hard for us to believe that this is Christ's opinion of us. That He looks down on us sinners. And He says, there's no spot in thee. You're all fair and I love you. When you read of God's love for you in the Scripture, are you just taking it as, yes, that's, that's a statement in the Bible. Yeah, I love you too. Right? Sometimes, I love you, love you too, bye. Right? Is that the way you think Christ is speaking to you in this passage? Is this just a one-off statement of, well, yeah, we're married, so i got to tell you I love you because we're married, and that's what married people do. No, you read passion in here. You read passion in here. And if this is a picture of Christ's love to His church, and it's a passionate love. Now, let me be very careful what I say, because our confession says that God has neither body nor parts nor passion. So if God is not, uh, doesn't have passion like we do, how can I say He has passion? Well, God does have emotion. God certainly has emotion. Our confession does not state that God is void of emotion. God's not static. He's not a robot. We are not the frozen chosen. God's the great uh, refrigerator. When God says He loves you, He genuinely loves you. He has a love you, but He loves you with a God-like love. He loves you with the divine love, which is most unlike normal human fallen love. Anything about God, any aspect of God is divine, and His love is divine. And one of the supreme beauties of God is what's called the aseity of God. It comes from the Latin, to be. And the aseity of God teaches that God is utterly independent of anything. God cannot be moved by anything. As in, she did not make Solomon love her, but Solomon set his love on her. We do not make God love us, but He determines to love us. It is His will and purpose to love us. It's His eternal will to love you. You cannot make Him love you more or less. You cannot change God's degree of love for you. It's not that if you went to church, uh, you know, without missing a, a day in three years, that God loves you more than the guy that, you know, had a cold last week. But God sets His love on you because God, like we're saying this morning, God is sovereign. If He wants to love you, He's going to love you because He wants to love you. No matter what you do or try to get out of it, you can't change God. You can't make God not love you. 
And here's the amazing part. We see that this is a love that has action behind it. How many people around the world do you love that you can't do anything for? Hopefully a lot, because we're supposed to love our neighbors, right? How many people you see suffering, but you just don't have the ability to do anything? But here, God puts His love into action, and this amazing thing, us poor creatures receive this love, and when you love somebody, what do you want? You want communion with them. You want to be around them. You want to be close with them. You want to hang out with them. You want to be close to them. And here God displays His love by the mighty God of the universe coming down and wanting communion with us. Because He loves us. Verse 8. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. With me from Lebanon, look from the top of Amana, from the top of Shinir, from Hermon, from the lion's den, from the mountains of the leopards. Oh, he's actually being... Very descriptive here. Uh, these are all mountains just south of Lebanon in the north of Israel. It's actually a whole range of mountains. Why is he comparing her to mountains? Well, he's talking about her body. Mount Amana. It's uh, nothing typical, but according to the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, the word Amana means constant or firm. And Shinir and Hermon are two separate mountain ranges from the same uh, row of mountains. Uh, in ver- chapter 2, verse 17, he talks about, Until the day break and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be, like, be thou like a young a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Bether. Well, there's no mountains of Bether in, in, in any Bible atlas, but maybe some of your Bibles translation, maybe some of your versions have uh, mountains of separation. Well, look at this at verse 9. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. That's God's description of how He feels when He communes with us. And again, His feelings are divine feelings. And it's, it's beautiful. He, God doesn't experience feelings the way we do. He doesn't go from one feeling to another. He doesn't change. He's unchangeable. But God certainly experiences feelings. That means if He loves you, He loves you unchangingly. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my near kinsman. Aren't you thankful that Christ is your older brother? My spouse, I was ravished thine heart with one of thine eyes. This is how he feels about his Shulamite. And when we apply it upwardly, vertically, to Christ in his church, this is Christ telling his church, telling you how he feels about communion with you. Every Christian in here. That's how He feels when you commune with Him in prayer, when you commune with Him through His Word, when you commune with Him through His church. Meditating on the Scriptures. Remember, married couples, when you started to have an interest in each other, do you remember perhaps that first time you looked over and you saw the other person and they were looking back at you? 
Can you both turn your heads quick? That's what Christ is saying for the church. He's looking down in love and passion. This is what he thinks of our prayers, of our worship. This is what he thinks of communion with us, with everyone in here. How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. How much better is thy love than wine and the smell of thine ointments than all spices. Thy lips, O my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under my tongue and the smell of thy garments is like the smell of Lebanon. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a well shut up, a fountain sealed. Now before I get to this next point, I would just like to ask a question. Why do you have a garden? Why does anybody have a garden, whether it's a vegetable garden or a flower garden? Why do you have a garden? You have a garden to partake of the fruit of that garden. The church is called a garden here. And he put all this time and effort in growing the garden. Very common uh, illustration used all throughout Scripture. You do the work in expectation of a harvest. You plant beautiful flowers so you can smell them, so you can look on them, so you can commune with plants. And here he compares her love to uh, a garden. How fair is thy love, my sister? Uh, Oh, verse 13. Thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, camphor with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with old trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, thou south, blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out, that my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. I remember when we were young, first married, we lived in, around Fort Worth, didn't have two nickels to rub together, so we would often go to the Fort Worth Botanical Garden, and you, I, I can still smell it to this day. You know, your sense of smell, as I've been told, has one of the strongest memories of any of your senses. I can just pulling up into the driveway, you can just smell it when it's in full bloom, all the roses, and it's just so delightful, so beautiful. We'd spend hours there just walking around, just enjoying, just being in the company of these beautiful flowers. It was lovely. And the wind takes up this fruit and distributes it. So all the graces come to us, all the love of God. The love of Christ is communicated to its church through the wind of the Holy Spirit. They come to us from the Holy Spirit and carry the sweet fragrance of God's love from His Word to us. Have you ever had those times in in prayer and reading when it's just you and God? And you just have these moments where there's nothing else out there. The world doesn't exist. It's just you and God. And that's the way you want it. And you just wish they could just stay right there. He gives such wonderful gifts to men. He gives us such good things, such assurances of His love. One of the things that annoys me in the Song of Solomon, I think they, uh, several of the passages have, uh, some of the chapter divisions are one off. I 
to certainly think verse 1 should belong with chapter 4. But chapter 5, verse 1 says this. He has the garden and he says, I am coming to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I've gathered my myrrh with my spices. I've eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I've drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, O friends, drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. He gives such good gifts to us, assurances of His love. Psalm 104, verse 14. In this whole psalm, this section of the psalm, He's talking about all the good gifts He gives to the world. He says, He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle and the herb for the service of man, that He may bring forth food out of the earth, and wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make His face to shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. Now one thing about receiving the love of Christ and dwelling in it is that we know that while we're in this world, we know we can't just be like Lancelot Andrews, one of the chief translators of the King James Bible, who said, any man that knocks on my door before noon must be an atheist. Because he prayed every day when he woke up till noon. Well, it... It might be easier if we had as much money and servants as he had. But the cares of this world do affect us, don't they? We have to get busy. We have to get stressed. Credit card bills. Well, where's Kevin? If you're listening, Kevin, uh, just ignore that Kevin credit card bill part. And sometimes we can grow complacent in God's love. Sometimes we fail to seek it out like we ought to, sometimes it might even become commonplace. And its effects wears off on your mind and your heart. And you begin to drift away or take it for granted. So here He comes with good gifts. Here He comes with good gifts. I sleep, she says in verse 2. But my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, for my head is filled with dew, and my locks with the drops of the night. Here he comes. He's seeking, actively seeking out her love. He's actively seeking out her communion and the pleasure it gives him to be with her. He comes in the nighttime. He comes in the cold. He's endured. He brings gifts. Sometimes we get seek out too much of the comfort of the flesh. We indulge ourselves. We forget how sweet His love is. We forget how much we love Him and we just... Oh, she says here, I've put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I've washed my feet. How shall I defile them? Man, imagine this. Imagine it's, it's date night. And you come home. You have flowers, a dozen roses, a box of chocolates, a bottle of wine. You have it all neatly packaged. You put on your best cologne. You're carrying your little box of gifts to the room. You knock on the door. Uh, honey, I'm home. But she's just too warm in those blankets. And it's cold. She don't want to get up and put her slippers on. 
He just leaves you out there. Leaves the door locked. Don't want to even put up the effort to commune with her own husband. Now, I know my natural temper would be about the third time I knock. Probably be to kick the door in. Then I'd give her those gifts right to leave me out there. What are you thinking? And you stop to think about it. Who was her husband in this story? It says it wasn't her husband. This is Solomon, the king. She not only defied her husband, she defied the king. That's serious. You don't just ignore the king. Imagine the greater sin of ignoring your God. When God comes to knock on the door of your heart and wants you to open up unto Him so He can come in and commune with you, the sinful creature. And you just leave God out there knocking on your door. Well, we ought to be very glad God is not like me. I'd be a very poor God. Then something happens. I rose to, my, to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh, my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. So it seems like one of the gifts he was going to bring to her is some perfume. And he anoints the door handle with perfume, and that perfume begins to permeate the room. And the room fills up with that sweet smell. Actually, I think myrrh kind of had a, a bitter smell, but I actually don't know what myrrh smells like. But it begins to fill the room and the smell of her beloved brings back those memories, brings back those affections. It warms her heart. It stirs her spirit spirit up. And now she says, I rose to my beloved. Now she gets up out of bed. That's right. That's my beloved. She forgot. How could she forget? She loves her husband. Christ is so gentle when dealing with His beloved Despite everything that hath has happened to you, I think we can all say Christ has been gentle with us. Much like he was with Peter. In Luke twenty two, thirty two, he says this to Peter after telling him he was going to betray be betrayed by him. That Satan desires to sift him. And he says, But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. The intercession of Christ for His people to stir up their hearts to seek Him out is most effectual, most kind and gentle. He doesn't kick the door in and yell, don't you know who I am? Just think of all the times God could have justly crushed you. God, How many Ananias and Sapphiras could God fill this house with if He were to come in such hard judgment? But he's gentle and kind and effectual in his love. So she gets up. She says, now this is the most terrifying thought for a Christian. The most terrifying thought for a Christian. Now, when she wanted to, I opened to my beloved. But my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. 
My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. Some of you children, some of you unbelievers, do not understand the enormity of that statement. And I sought my beloved and could not find him, that he had withdrawn himself. You don't understand that for a Christian, that Christ is our everything. That we would give up the whole world for Him. That we would give up our own lives for Him. And to have our chief joy gone. There's nothing more fearful. That's not the most fearful thing. You've never enjoyed Christ like a Christian has. So now, she who wouldn't even get out of bed to open the door, now look what she's going to go through. Verse, chapter 2, verse 2, it, it kind of bounces back and forth in this story. It says, I will arise and go about the city and the streets and the broad ways will I seek him whom my soul loveth. Back in chapter 5, verse 7, he's, the watchmen that went out about the city, they found me, found me, they smote me, they wounded me, the keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. So you realize what the psalmist was saying in Psalm 73, 25, whom, I, whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. Now she's willing to hazard the dangers of a big city in the Middle East 3,000 years ago. I can say that's a dangerous place. I went to a mission trip a number of years ago to Blantyre, Malawi. And we had a night service. And on the way home, our, 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 our taxi broke down. It was on a long, stretched, dark road. And it wasn't 30 seconds before we were accosted and robbed by a gang. And uh, they threw lots of punches. Uh, Thankfully, uh, I was able to get my passport and put it under the seat and they weren't able to rob me of it. And uh, and then we, we, the other missionary I went with, he was a a pretty big old West Texas corn-fed boy. And when he got out of of the car, they kind of all fled away. They were all a bunch of little short guys. But still, there's 12 of them, and it hurt. They can throw some punches. Being out in the, at night in this part of the world, especially 3,000 years ago, is very dangerous. But she's not even considering that. Look what she's willing to go through now. How effectual is, God, is, her, is God's drawing of us to Him? Now she wants Him. Now she seeks Him. But here's the thing. He is still the King. And God is still God. And we do not get to determine how we seek God. We do not get to determine how we worship God. How we commune with God. It's a great enough gift and blessing that He even wants to commune with us. But He's not going to do so on our terms. It's certainly 
forbidden by the second commandment. The second commandment establishes that we will worship God and approach God the way God tells us to and no other way. You don't get to. Not even, you can't use God's love as a hammer to hit Him over the head with. You can't use God's against His other attributes like His righteousness and holiness and honor. They work in perfect harmony. God's not a light switch for us to turn on and off. Yes, God, no God. Yes, God, no God. And God will so work upon your souls to make sure that that never happens. You ever get in that mindset? That's what she thought. She says, communion, yes. Communion, no. God says, I will draw you after me. And He does so with gentleness and love and grace and mercy. The watchman the faithful watchmen, the watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the wall took away my veil from me. Watchmen not only watch for bandits and armies coming from without, but what are they else? What's one of their other jobs? Watch for traitors within the city walls. You're a faithful watchman. You're dutiful, observant. Well, you see, you see this woman running around in the middle of the night. She's out of place, isn't she? She's out of order. She's not where we should be. She should be in bed with her husband. She said she's running around frantic at night. That's not right. Something's not going on. Something's not right. Thank the Lord for faithful watchmen over your souls. Have you ever been wounded? By one of the elders here, pointing a sermon, a rebuke. Sometimes the preaching of the word can just cut right to you. Sometimes people get so offended. I never forget the pastor of Hamp Linehan one time, pastor of First Baptist Church of Richland Hills. I think it's Reformed Baptist Church now. He got fired from a church. And one of the test ladies testifying against him in his trial to fire him said, I don't like his preaching. He makes me feel bad about my sins. Thank the Lord for faithful watchmen who are watching over your soul. So see what sad state in she is. And it's dark, it's cold, it's damp. She's wounded, she's panicking. But it gets worse. She's out of order. And people now look at her and see her. She's out of order. There's a bride who rejected her husband. Who offended her husband. It gets worse. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell him that I am sick of love. They reply, What is thy beloved more than another beloved? O thou fairest among women. What is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? Oh, you want us to help seek you the husband that you evidently love so much. He must not be that good of a husband if you're this kind of wife. Why should we seek after him? How do we know we're not just going to end up like you? We don't want to be like you. Imagine you so conducting yourself 
that the name of Christ is blasphemed because of what you did. What kind of Christian are you? What kind of church? I want to go to that church. That church is full of hypocrites. I want to worship that doctrine. Imagine people blaspheming Christ because of you. Romans 2.24 For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. As a charged ancient Israel. But in this attack against Him, stirs up the answer. Stirs up the answer to all this mess. They say, what's so lovely about Him? It's a wonderful question. What is so lovely about Christ? No matter what mess you've made of your life, what mistakes you've made, how you've messed up, no matter where you are or how bad you've messed up, you can always look to Him. Cast your mind upward to heaven. Think on His beauty, His excellencies. My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among ten thousand. His head is as most fine gold, His locks are bushy, black as a raven. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of water, washed with milk and pitly set. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, sweet flowers. His lips like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. His hands are as rings, gold rings set with the barrel. His belly is bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are as pillars of marble set upon sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, yea, he is all together lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And in a real sense, this is what we always want. Even if we're not out of order as she is, if we're not wounded in the night and out of place, we still don't want to draw the attention to ourselves. Oh yeah, look at our church, look what we do, look, you know, look how nice our match carpet matches our seats. We do things right here. That's the message somebody receives coming here. They're receiving the wrong message. That the message we want to give each other and everyone is look to Christ. Let's look to Christ. John Gill says this of this text. Excellent commentary, by the way. Yea, he is altogether lovely in his person, offices, people, word, and ordinances, his loveliness is perfect, nothing wanting in it. He is so to all his father, angels, and saints, or he is all desires, exceeding desirable, having all excellencies, perfections, and fullness in him. And being so in all of his character, office, and relations, he stands in to his people, to whom he is all things, even all in all, and they desire none but him should definitely be the goal of this church and each one of us. That we be a source of causing people to love none but Him. Her description of her beloved works wonderfully well on their hearts. Because again, I think this passage, this next verse should be in chapter 5. Whither is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? Whither is thy... Beloved, turned aside that we may seek Him with thee. May God help us that when we mess up, 
when we sin, that He so works it for good like He always does in His promise and in His superlative promise to work all things for good. That we become a source of people seeking Him. Of seeking a desire to see and know His loveliness. Some of you may have been grown cold in your love for Christ. Seek Him. Find all these perfections John Gill is talking about. What does it mean He's perfect in His person and offices and people? What are the offices of Christ? And how does He fulfill them in beauty and wonder and grace and love? You'll spend the rest of your lives, yeah, the rest of eternity, exploring our wonderful God and Savior. I can say that it does end well. And that Christ is effectual in getting what He wanted. What did Christ come to a room for? Communion and fellowship. What did He end up with? In chapter 2, verse 4, and we'll end with that. It was but a little while I passed from them. But I found Him whom my soul loveth. I held Him and would not let Him go. What a wonderful state to be in. That He had so wrought upon her heart that now she holds on to Him and never wants to let Him go again. His withdrawing wasn't cruel or his punishment or vindictive. He wasn't pitching a fit. He's acting yet in love and grace to draw greater love from her. And the trials that you've gone through, the dark nights of the soul you might have gone through, are all wrought by God to have this effect that Christ may become your all in all. Word of application that the point of this sermon is not to become a tyrant in prayer or reading your, the Scripture. It's not to be, oh, if I don't think about Christ 24-7, then I'm going to, He's going to run away from me and I'm going to lose Him and I'm going to have to go through this dark night of the soul. No. Christ is not a tyrant. He knows you're but men. He knows what you have to go through on a daily basis. So don't think yourself I have to be over-righteous much. But be open and sensitive to those times when Christ does knock on your door. When it is time for communion. When it is time for devotions. When it is time to go to church. Hopefully nobody in here had to make a decision to come to church. Do I want to go to church? Flip God's light switch on? Or do I just want to stay home? Flip the light switch off. These times set aside... For example, say Sunday school. Sunday school is a time for you to commune with the Word, with the Scriptures, with learning about church history or God. And all all the Sunday schools here are supposed to be vertical to help you love and learn about Christ more. To commune with Christ and His people in the Sunday schools. I do want to encourage everybody to be as faithful as you can in that time. And to attend the Sunday schools faithfully. To learn and grow thereby. And to commune with each other as often as possible. You know, I do regret living, you know, close to about an hour away, and that kind of limits me personally in, in uh, you know, so attending some events like this past Saturday. But seek Him. And lastly, I would say, 
to those who have never known Christ, to you young people who have yet to place your faith in Him, seek Him. He will be found. And you will discover the greatest beauty, the greatest joy, everlasting joy. God is, Christ does not like pizza. I love to eat pizza. We cook a lot of it. But imagine eating pizza three times a day, you know, after, after but one day. Three or four or five days, you'd be disgusted to look at pizza, wouldn't you? Christ has eternal beauty. He has an everlasting joy. Seek Him and you will not be disappointed. Thank you.